What I love about DNS and why I really gravitated toward it was every answer was always explained by developmental kinesiology, which made total sense for me. So like, yeah. if for example, your computer doesn't work, or your phone doesn't work, what do you do? You do a hard restart. So it's kind of like what DNS is. We basically return the body to a time when the neurology hopefully was perfect and we had perfect activation of all the muscles around the joint. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey there, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today we have on Brett Winchester. I met Brett two years ago at a DNS seminar in Breckenridge, Colorado. DNS is a course on how to move and rehab on a neurodevelopmental level, like how we learned our movement patterns when we were babies. I met him and Rich Ulm teaching together, and they completely changed how I practice and how I work with patients. If you want to check out Rich's episode, it's number 12, How a Chiropractor Can Help You Strength Train More Effectively. Brett travels the world teaching how to rehab elite athletes for DNS, Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization, and another organization called MPI, Motion Palpation Institute. He has a clinic where functional movement meets functional medicine just outside St. Louis and was a chiropractor training the Cardinals baseball team for the last three years. He is a wealth of knowledge. He drops clinical pearls of how elite athletes build tension but also stay loose to perform at their highest, how functional medicine is an integral part of rehab, and how to avoid burnout as a practitioner. Enjoy this episode. Brett is so humble and wicked smart. If you feel like muscle medicine is adding value, go to iTunes, rate and review. Every review helps spread the message of muscle medicine. We're sitting down with Brett Winchester, which is super exciting. I feel like I've been trying to get you on this podcast for three months, maybe longer. (laughs) So I read this quote. One of my patients who's a baseball player sent me this quote. You probably heard it, but I think it's like a good intro. So this guy says, when you pitch, you're always right at the edge of your physical limits. You're like a race car driver going 200 miles an hour into a banked turn. You have to push, push, push. But if you push just a little too hard, you crash. You spend your entire career finding that balance. This guy named Max Scherzer? Oh, yeah. He's actually from St. Louis. Oh, he is? Yeah. So... After that quote, which I was like, whoa, like that is the essence of being an elite athlete. I then watched a video of him grunting like (laughs) the loudest like grunt ever while pitching. And I was like, wow, there is a great example of finding more tension and intra-abdominal pressure, more pressure in the belly to push that, that limit. Yeah, it's what's interesting is throwing a baseball is considered to be the most violent movement in sports. And really? one, of, I didn't one know of my that. big epiphany moments is when I was at the stadium and they were out in batting practice. 
And I heard a crazy sound and I, I didn't know what it was. It sounded like an industrial fan. Well, that noise was actually the guy's arm. He was going through the motion, but without the ball. So that crazy whipping sound. And then I knew like throwing a baseball or throwing any object is so different than what the training world actually thinks that it is. You know, like if you see like exercises for throwing, you see all these like crazy push things and what actually happens is the most violent pull move that you've, you've ever seen. And then like you're talking about the grunting with uh, Scherzer, that is all comes back to like some DNS principles as far as like intra-abdominal pressure and being able to get yourself stiff at the right time and letting these muscles pull from a stiff spine essentially. Yeah. So when you've worked with elite athletes, what are some of the basic things that you're teaching them or re-educating them? Because oftentimes we think of elite athletes as they're so elite, they must not be injured because there's such this form, but really they're probably injured all the time and like really fighting pain from a physical and mental game. Professional athletes, they basically look exactly like your schedule of people looks like, ironically. Like there's no real change there. Just like everyday Joe. Yeah. Like they're going to have the same joint fixations, things like that where they're so gifted is they're neurologic savants with their body. They're basically geniuses with their body. But that doesn't mean that they all have freely movable joints and normal soft tissues and they don't have trigger points and things like that. So they can relax and explode their muscles better than everyone else in the world. They also feel their bodies better than everyone else in the world. And I, we tell all kinds of neat stories in DNS and I've had some crazy ones also where they just have this uncanny ability. The story Collage always tells is he worked with a famous hockey player, Yager, and Yager could tell the difference of one millimeter in five hockey sticks. He could go stick handle, come back to the boards, and line them up from shortest to longest. And then like even like if, if I build orthotics for professional baseball players, it's amazing how they know exactly what they want their feet to feel like in their cleats. Mm-hmm. Or like the pitchers will say man, I love the mound in City Park, but I just don't like it in Philadelphia or St. Louis or where you and I, we would just step on the mound and it would all feel the same to us. But they have such an amazing ability to feel their bodies, which brings us to like this next really important question is if you have an average athlete, let's say, what can we do as far as treatment? Do we have something to offer to reconcile to help these people if they're not great at it? You know, I mean, the greats are the greats. So if you're just an average athlete, you know, what, what's possible? The one thing I've learned in my career is I think there's limitations. If you're seven feet tall, you can't be a, a jockey, you know, <laughs> riding a horse. If you're five feet tall, you can't be a center in the NBA. So there are some genetic limitations, but I think we're learning with neuroplasticity that there is a lot that's possible for our, for our everyday people who don't think they're professional athletes. Is it? The amount of work they put in, the mental... That's part of it. I mean, there are so many components to how you get to be the best in the world at something. The story I really like also is Ted Williams, because Ted Williams, in the middle of his career, he missed five, year, five years because he fought in two wars. So when he went to, to be a pilot, basically, the, per, the head person there was like, who in the hell is Ted Williams? I have never in my life seen somebody so good in a cockpit. And what they went on to say was the same things that made him the best hitter in baseball also made him the best fighter pilot. So there's just some interesting neurology that are involved that no one ever talks about, which is spatial relationships, your vestibular system, 
how well you integrate all your senses together. Like all those things are really important in becoming a great athlete. And then you have the whole practice component, like you alluded to, which is, are you willing to work hard? Do you learn from your mistakes is probably the biggest thing. That's a really important for like you and I also in our daily practice. Are you numb when you walk into a treatment room or is every patient that you're seeing an opportunity to make yourself better? Carol Levitt, he said, one of my big mentors who he saw patients up until he was 95 years old, he said, the best patient I ever saw will be my last patient because it'll have 70 years of experience built into my hands, which oh. is like the coolest thought ever. <laughs> it's like mind blowing. So, so part of it is experience, but, but I mean, if, if that was the only thing, then people who spend two hours on the golf range would be great golfers. And that doesn't necessarily always, you know, yeah. yeah. Play out. Going back to that imagery of like someone pitching without the ball and that like whoosh sound, yeah. how, how does someone stay free flowing when they're throwing the baseball with like their full potential and max effort, but then do it safely? So it's basically equivalent to, I think it's 1200 Newtons or about 280 pounds of distractive force on your arm as the ball's coming through. You can imagine swinging a 285-pound kettlebell at that moment. <laughs> so basically, your brain is essentially wanting to disarticulate your glenohumeral joint. So the hard part is it's such a delicate balance of stabilization. Now, you ask a really tough question because I think what you're asking me is what would be some possible training ideas for this movement that occurs? Because the part of the story I didn't tell you was when I went back into my office down there, and I tried to duplicate it. There was no sound coming from my arms, zero. <laughs> but the key is being able to create the right amount of stiffness in your spine or intra-abdominal pressure and let those muscles explode off of that. But there's mm -hmm. a component of relaxation first. So most people in the world, let's say 99.9% .9 of athletes, they're going to reverse that. They're going to have not enough stiffness in their core or abdominal musculature and they're going to have too much stiffness in the muscle in their periphery. And that's just not for throwing a ball. That's for weight training, Olympic weightlifting. I mean, any sport that you could tell me, it's going to be the same mechanics, basically. So the goal is create proximal stiffness and then be able to explode your muscles in the periphery off of this stiffness. And that's the name of the game of all athletics. And you create that stiffness with the breath, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah the diaphragm is the initiator of all of this. And that's what's really neat about. And this isn't going to pertain to all your people who are listening, but the people who do manipulation, it's the same thing. You want to be the best adjuster in the world. You'll be the best at the, the things that we just talked about. I took DNS with you, totally changed my practice. And I'm curious, do you see, right? Because every day we teach people like how to breathe, how to create that intra-abdominal pressure, very much the opposite of what a lot of people come in with, which is to kind of suck their belly up and in and do lots of chest breathing. Do you see that habit of kind of pulling the belly button to the spine and breathing shallow in your elite athletes? Like I kind of assume that they don't do that because they have to build so much tension, but maybe, I don't know, maybe yeah, they, no, they I, also I have to get retrained. <laughs> on that exact thought that one of the worst injuries in baseball that we deal with are oblique injuries. And we had a guy who was on the DL. So I had spent quite a bit of time with him when he was getting ready to come off the DL he had a shirt off and he grabbed the bat. And it was interesting after all that training, he didn't know I was watching, but he just went right back to his old stereotype, which was 
holding his stomach in after he went through two weeks, basically, of learning how to do it the right way. Was it because his shirt was off? (laughs) Uh, Maybe, but I I think more importantly, it was just the habit of it, you know? Uh. So then I think like there's a whole nother level of clinician who's able to then dive into their actual activity. And this is really challenging to then have the guts to explain to them what this matters in their life or sport. Instead of just assuming, well, I had it in the treatment room, blah, blah, blah. There is not as good of a carryover as we think. Let's put it that way. Hmm. If they're training it you know, on this motor control level, how come it's hard to carry over just like bad Why habits? Because that bad habit is so ingrained. You know, like they've been taught for 20 years of their life that it's better to have their abdominal wall sucked in, not only from the way that it looks, but also from a performance standpoint. And even in the rehab world, you know, in the late 1990s, we were teaching that, you know? So, I mean, we're all guilty of it. And then thankfully, between Stu McGill and Dr. Collage, we've been able to understand that that is... I mean, there's really, there's so much overwhelming evidence now to refute that, but it's still, as you know, really difficult with our patients, really difficult. Yeah. Why was there like in the late nineties, just going back to what you were saying, why was there this like transition to like pulling up and in and sucking in and... Because of Paul Hodge's original research that they found that with people who have one episode of low back pain, then they have a delay on the onset of transverse abdominus activation. So then the knee-jerk response was, okay, how do we activate transverse abdominus, which is an abdominal wall muscle? And the answer was concentrically to suck it in. So that's where, it, that's where that all started, you know. And then you're up against vanity, which we're all concerned about how our abdominal wall looks. And, you know, so yeah. it's like everything's going against us when we're trying to teach our patients the right way. <laughs> then I think a, a real important point is, so you, have, you need to teach the right respiration. Then there's another function of the diaphragm, which is generating intra-abdominal pressure. And that is what in the athletic world, they need to learn how to be able to do. So this stiffness should always be married to whatever the activity you're doing. So if I'm deadlifting 300 pounds, it's 100%. If I'm walking, it's less than 5%. If I'm swinging a golf club, you know what I'm saying? So because a lot of times, like the thing you hear about DNS that people gripe about is they're like, well, that's not the right amount. Of, that's too much intra-abdominal pressure. We get it, but you got to start somewhere. So because the pattern's so disturbed, in the beginning of rehab, we train more than we would all like to admit that we need for that activity, knowing that at some point the brain scrambles it and will learn, hopefully, the right amount of intra-abdominal pressure for whatever activity we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Like you want to use a different amount of pressure to pick up a pencil than to yes, pick up the deadlift. Some pressure because everyone's like, well, you know, what about picking up a cup of coffee or a pencil? Yes, you need some, but it's less than 1%. But the yeah. people, and that's what we did learn from Paul Hodges in the mid-1990s was people who have low back pain, they don't have that neurologic feed-forward mechanism in place to stiffen their spine to reach and pick up your coffee or your pencil. So that's what we have to train our patients. In the beginning, yeah, they completely over-recruit it. And then as four to six weeks go by or three weeks, depending on the patient, then they learn how to do it the right way. And then the last thing we want is a batter to be thinking, okay, the pitch is coming. I have to now generate intra-abdominal pressure. Okay, now I'm ready to swing the bat. No, we want this to all be subconscious and happen naturally. Right, right. But in the rehab world, it's so disturbed, you have to like start somewhere. So it is very cortical. They have to think about it quite a bit. And then we work to be in, have it being more subconscious or reactive. Yeah. 
So you have this really interesting practice and just really interesting life. I feel like (laughs) all the Cairo students coming out of college are like, I want to be like Brett Winchester. (laughs) So traveling all over the world, teaching for DNS, and then also MPI, Motion Palpation Institute. And you have a clinic that's kind of similar to the mine in New York where it's like functional movement. There's a gym component of getting strong meets functional medicine. Can you tell me kind of how that developed and how that came about? Yeah, so to me, that's where it's all at. So before I was in this office, which is a little over 7,000 square feet, I was in 2,000 square feet. And I realized real quickly that there was a group of people who I wasn't helping. So Mm -hmm. that is when I started getting intrigued with functional medicine, which would have been probably about maybe a little over 10 years ago before it was really big because I knew there was a group of people that they thought I was helping them, but I knew I wasn't helping them. I mean, so they, let's just say they have two autoimmune diseases. A lot of times they're, they're female, they're, they could be depressed. There's like just a lot of, you know, this very layered case. Yeah. I just wasn't able to help them. So I dove in on myself personally to start learning all this stuff. Wow. What I learned was that I can't do this on my own (laughs) because I couldn't do the manual piece, the rehab piece and the functional medicine piece. I just, it was fatiguing. You need like a two-hour session. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I then searched for a person and really got a good one for functional medicine. And then immediately she was taking all of these crazy cases. And I mean, it was just one miracle after another just by her diving into some of these, you know, whether it's a metabolic condition or, you know, all these autoimmune issues, depression, anxiety the affective pain component, the Mosley model of pain. So that was one part of it. And then the next part of it was we knew we needed to get our patients moving besides just in the rehab room. So I knew we needed to have a gym component to it. Yeah. So there's, there's three pillars, which is the treatment, there's functional medicine, and there's the gym. So I have a question because I've been, we, we treat very similar is I've been seeing a lot of the autoimmune cases. So people who've thyroid issues, usually hypothyroid, come in and they have tissue laxity or they have hypermobility. Like you look at their, their, I think it's like a Baton score, like their knees hyperextend, their elbows, and then their thumbs touch their wrists. And sometimes even before I send them to the functional medicine doctor, I'm like, you know, oftentimes, and I, I haven't found research, I'm kind of looking that, you know, this laxity not to the point of like an earlier Danlos, but that there's like, you know, an autoimmune component. Have you seen that in your practice? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, these people, what we say now is like the gene pool is very dirty in a way because <laughs> like 200 years ago, a lot of these conditions, for example, like type 1 diabetes or Graves disease or whatever it might be, would have killed that person off. So now our Western medicine is so good that people can still thrive, which is a wonderful thing, but then the gene pool gets a little bit weakened. So because of that, we have a lot of looseness and connective tissue. We have, a, we have more autoimmune diseases being diagnosed today than we've ever had. So then the next really important question is why is that? There's many different reasons. Diet would be one. There's a thought on the loose connective tissue is that we're not eating the marrow of the animals like we used to eat, which is now I think why you're seeing like this whole bone broth movement you know, yeah. which I think that's part of it. The diet has drastically changed in the last 30 years. And this is not a pro or con against vaccination, but the vaccination schedule has changed. 
So that's the other issue that could be on the table for why now we're seeing also more loose connective tissue than we've ever seen. Yeah. But so these, these people who have autoimmune issues, a lot of times you'll see like across many different systems of the body, they have issues. It's not just like if talking about Hashimoto's disease, the hypothyroid condition, it's not just an endocrine issue. It ends up also being a musculoskeletal issue, a female hormone issue. We'll find all kinds of deficiencies in other areas of their body. So it's just widespread, which makes it more challenging to treat. Yeah. So do you find that like clients that you used to work with that maybe, you know, because we all have those clients who are like, oh, I, you know, I feel the same. Or you're like, how do you feel this week? And it's like the same that once they integrated the functional medicine changes that oh, consistently yeah. feeling the same, which was usually not great, <laughs> started to get right. better. Well, the story that I always tell, Emily, that completely changed my life on functional medicine forever. So I had a, a lady who came to me and she was 18 and she was referred to me for orthotics. And unfortunately, she was like a chronic pain case. I felt like I just wasn't able to help this lady at all. So anyway, she's in and out of my life. She went to college, kind of comes back on Christmas break. I would see her. In my opinion, I never was able to help her much. But anyways, so she comes back one time and she says she's never had her period. Is that normal? At this point, she was 23 years old. Not one time. I always have interns and people with me. So it's not like a real conducive environment for like diving into something like that. So she saw Dr. Falano, our functional medicine specialist, Unfortunately, so she hadn't told a soul, but she had been sexually abused when she was 13 years old by her sister's boyfriend and two of his friends and hadn't told a soul, not one person. Mm. So Rebecca did no changes with her. Oh, the only thing she did was order blood work, you know, so, but all that she did was just tell her story. And then she had her first period within that next three week period after that. Wow. With no, no change. The only thing was getting that out. So we, in our office, we have a saying, we call it the BOS, which is short for a bag of shit, which means everybody's dragging something into the treatment room that you may or may not know. And we can argue whether or not that's our business to dive into it. The important thing is when a patient, like you said, continues to come back to us and says, I'm no better, and they should be better. That's why we need to audit the body to know like, well, your tissues feel great. Your joints are moving well. You should be feeling better. That there's a reason why. So even if you don't want to dive into the psychology of it all, you at least need to know that way you can get that particular person the help that they need. One thing I've learned with dealing with our functional medicine person is people live very complicated lives. And some of the stories, I mean, I, it, I could just write a book on it. Like it's so insane <laughs> to hear like what people go through. But they can yeah. pull on a clown's mouth every day and act like everything's perfect. You know, yeah. why it matters for you and I is in the treatment room, it manifests in a different way on them reporting that they still hurt. So their back may not be the issue now at this point, but that's just their way of relaying all of their problems to you. So we have a very important job because we can triage if we're good at what we're doing to know exactly what that person needs. So. It's very interesting, for sure. So you teach at Logan. I do. University. And I think one of just really your great strengths is really elevating students and practitioners to be the best clinicians they can be, which is kind of part of that audit. I think when we first begin, if we're a good practitioner, we're asking ourselves, 
How can we do it better? And are, are we missing something when someone comes in kind of consistently reporting not getting better? Right. So what kind of stuff are you teaching the students to really challenge themselves to be the best clinician they can be? So I think one of the more important things for any kind of physician or doctor or trainer or PT is clinical intuition is clinical recognition. So if you're ever with a patient and you're like, wow, this just doesn't feel right. I feel like you know this isn't responding the way that I want it to then the reason you feel that is because you felt it a hundred times a different way. And now this is, this is acting differently. So I think the most important thing is every time you walk in with a patient, and for me, it's the doorframe. Like when I walk to the doorframe, I try to like do the best job I can to give a hundred percent of my attention. Because what I learned early on in my career was I was giving like 10% with the patient. You know, your thoughts are going everywhere and you're worried about email or, you know, something else. So then I felt like, you know, I need to be more present with my patients. But then like learning how, for example, if I get rid of the trigger point in their flexor digitorum brevis of their foot, that I change the internal rotation of their shoulder. Like having those audits throughout the body and start to make those connections or you didn't, you know, like you, you released a trigger point in their foot, but it didn't change on that particular patient, their shoulder internal rotation or you adjusted their mid thoracic spine and you drastically change your cervical range of motion like starting to be able to like connect those dots and then when you then you can like create patterns like bobby fisher the best chess player in the world he was the best chess player because he was able to recognize patterns better than everybody else in the world and if you think about it that's exactly what we do all day long so we come into a patient we try to recognize a pattern and then hopefully we can learn from that that way the next time that walks in or something similar you do a better job not only with your treatment but the other thing that no one talks about is what you say to a patient like sometimes what you say to a patient doesn't resonate with them so they don't grab on and you know they come back they're not following your diet recommendations or they're not breathing the way that you want yeah. so instead of blaming that patient instead we blame ourselves and we say okay why did I not connect with that person? What could I have done differently to connect with them? Yeah. Going back to what you're saying is like, if someone was a patient and, you know, oftentimes you're kind of like, well, am I seeing the right person? Am I seeing a good practitioner? Is like someone who really is going back to the idea of like, you're releasing a trigger point in the foot and it's affecting something in the shoulder that seeing someone that does look head to toe and has, has a system to create an audit to like really yeah. scan the whole body. What do you think when you see like the new practitioners coming out of school or what are some of the like their biggest fears yeah, okay. back to so, like 11 years ago? <laughs> oh my gosh. So the, I guess the biggest thing is because of the instant gratification with technology now, everybody mm. thinks that they can just be great at something without understanding like the work that it takes to get to that point. So that's like one problem. The other problem we have is we call them seminar gypsies, which is my students go to a different seminar every weekend. So they, they kind of know how to do 50 things. And they're not great at anything, you know? So my advice to students is, you know, the first thing, since if you're a chiropractor, you need to be good at palpating and adjusting. Let's just start with that. So let's yeah. get really good at that. And then, I mean, that's where I think MPI does a really good job. Then we can start adding layers. You know, for me, it's like the combination of MPI, MDT, McKenzie, DNS and neurodynamics, I think is a really powerful combination. And then 
on like a sub-level, then of course there's ART, grass and dry needling. I had a, a lady who came to me and she was 18 and she was referred to me for orthotics. And unfortunately, she was like a chronic pain case. I felt like I just wasn't able to help this lady at all. So anyway, she's in and out of my life. She went to college, kind of comes back on Christmas break. I would see her. In my opinion, I never was able to help her much. But anyways, so she comes back one time and she says she's never had her period. Is that normal? At this point, she was 23 years old. Not one time. I always have interns and people with me. So it's not like a real conducive environment for like diving into something like that. So she saw Dr. Falano, our functional medicine specialist. Unfortunately, so she hadn't told a soul, but she had been sexually abused when she was 13 years old by her sister's boyfriend and two of his friends and hadn't told a soul, not one person. Mm. So Rebecca did no changes with her. All, the only thing she did was order blood work, you know. So, but all that she did was just tell her story, and then she had her first period within that next three week period after that. Wow! With no, no changes. Wild. The only thing was getting that out. So we in our office we have a saying we call it the BOS, which is short for bag of shit, which means. <laughs> everybody's dragging something into the treatment room that you may or may not know. And we can argue whether or not that's our business to dive into it. The important thing is when a patient, like you said, continues to come back to us and says, I'm no better and they should be better. That's why we need to audit the body to know like, well, your tissues feel great. Your joints are moving well. You should be feeling better that there's a reason why. So so like how to integrate those. So my students have been to all those courses, but they, what they suck at is knowing how to integrate that into one treatment or a model, you know? And I think the hard part is, is knowing the timing of when to implement it. If I have a patient come in with a disc herniation, for example, then I'm going to use the McKinsey protocol until they're centralized. Then I'm going to put my DNS hat on and, and then I'm going to be probably manipulating throughout that whole thing, you know? Yeah. The, but the student wants to do everything, spend an hour with them. And, you know, at the end of the day, the patient's no better and they're depressed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't made me money is the other thing. <laughs> well, I think the other thing that's tricky is like when you go to a seminar and you come yeah. back on Monday morning and like everything made sense over the weekend. And then like I remember going to a seminar and trying to integrate and like f- flailing. Like oh, sometimes I was like, I mean, this was years ago, but I was like, should I even charge this person? Because I feel like I'm just like experimenting. And <laughs> Should I pay them for what I just did to them? Yeah, exactly. Should I pay them for their time? And I think it's hard to like consistently show up day after day and push through and take flailing to like knowledge to then wisdom. Yeah. Well, I think that's why you got to have the journey mentality. Like it's not about, oh, I want to be great at this by next year. It's like, I like, remember the Levitt story. Like my best treatment is my last treatment. But the problem is people are typically numb during the day. So like people who've been out like you and I have in that 10 to 20 year range, they're already thinking about other stuff. Like my friends who I went to school with, they'll say things like, oh, it's such a grind. I hate this. What's crazy is I still love it. Not in a cheesy way, because to me, it's all one big puzzle. When I walk into a patient, it's like, they may be a really difficult personality for me, but I just think of their body as a puzzle I'm trying to solve. And I think because of that, I never get burned out. Like I'm just on this quest to continue to like push the limits of what's possible for a chiropractor is how I would phrase it. Yeah. When I think of you, I think 
Does bread ever get burnt out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, but what's hard about life is there's got to be more than this too, right? So, I mean, of course I have a wife and I have kids and right. so the hard part I think is like finding a balance. And I always tell the story of Colin Coward, the sports guy from ESPN. He always says, there's no such thing as balance guy. Balance guy does not exist. And he goes, no, no lady wants to sleep with balance guy. So to, to think that like your life is like this perfect pie of everything that's balanced is not reality. So things get out of balance for a second, you feel it. And then, you know, like the next day, okay, I need to be better in this pie of my life. But to think, I think people get depressed because they're like, my life's so out of balance, but the reality of it is life is out of balance. And you just got to bring order to the chaos by just, you know, knowing when to spend your time where. And I think people are really bad at time management is how I would finish that thought. People. Lay people, students, everyone. Yeah, like on some social media is obviously okay, but they waste their time on that or cable news or, you know, just stuff that is real low energy things. Like yeah. numbing things like you're talking about. Right. Whereas like, I think like if you put yourself in a, in a quiet room, 15 minutes can seem like an eternity without distraction. <laughs> and that's how you get yourself great at something chunk it 15 minutes of time, 15 minutes a day. Yeah. Build on that. And that's how you become great at it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a DNS question. So, I mean, we use it every single patient. I know you do. (laughs) We have a lot of women who come in that do like bar classes and Pilates and, you know, we're trying to teach them a different way of breathing. Yeah. And they're just like, what is going on? So, some of the people who kind of refute DNS are like, listen, our proportions when we were babies, right? The size of our head to our torso to our limbs is not our proportions as adults. So should we be training that intra-abdominal pressure brace be- even though our limbs are different proportions? Like, does it really have carryover to adulthood? Does no, it- I know. I I hear that. Honestly, I think it's a fair argument. I really do. And there's no way to like research that. So I can't say, well, here's three papers to refute that. I do get that. I mean, that is, that is like a fair argument. I just think that DNS is so powerful. And then what I love about DNS and why I really gravitated toward it was every answer was always explained by developmental kinesiology, which made total sense for me. So like, yeah. if for example, your computer doesn't work, or your phone doesn't work, what do you do? You do a hard restart. So it's kind of like what DNS is. We basically return the body to a time when the neurology hopefully was perfect and we had perfect activation of all the muscles around the joint. So I don't really, I could probably get a better answer for you when I thought about your question a little harder because it's a good question that we get I just think that I'm not going to say it doesn't apply. I just, I, I don't think that way. I, I think the thing in the world that is the most powerful in rehabilitation is DNS. Like, and I don't mean that, of course, I teach for it, I'm a homer, but I'm also have stuck my toe in about everything that's out there. And I, I, if you know me, I would be honest and tell you, like, I think DNS is just, it is the closest thing to magic that is out there. Yeah. So it's so powerful. The hard I part love- is it's difficult. You know, so it's difficult. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like other things like we always say there's 20 million people in the world who can do an FMS screen. Let's say there's not that many people who are so good with their hands or DNS. So that makes it, it makes the journey a little bit more fun because of that. 
Mm -hmm. But I mean, that makes some people not like it, you know, because some people want to basically be told exactly what to do and act like clinical robots. So if you're like that, you won't like DNS, I can promise you. Yeah. I always loved that there's a why behind the DNS. Like, you know, sometimes you go to course, you're like, well, why am I doing this? Oh, because the instructor said so. And it was because it came from the school of thought. But I always really resonated with DNS or it resonated with me because it was like, oh, the why behind it is because this is how we did it on a neurodevelopmental level when when we were born. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It does. So, and then like in baseball, for example, and you could do this, whatever your listeners are into, you could do this same analogy. In baseball, we have an epidemic problem of people tearing their UCL, which is a ligament in their elbow. So they have the Tommy John surgery, which most people know about. So we looked at basically everyone who's had a Tommy John surgery in Major League Baseball, which is about 1,300 players. They all can be bucketed into a group that are not the right DNS stereotype from developmental kinesiology. Wow. Let that sit in. I mean, it's crazy. So <laughs> well, if you look at the 300-game winners, which has been 20-something of them, they all are poster children for DNS principles. So those principles are important in rehabilitation, but they also are very important in our life or our sport. Those principles never let us down. If we had the best ping pong player in the world right here, we would show you how they're going to respect all the DNS principles that that you know. know? So it's really like this cool thing that you can always back up to. And like, if I'm in a seminar setting, all I got to do is get on my computer and show people pictures and I can kind of answer that question easily. Nice. Now, as far as the bone proportion and things like that, it's tough to say. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Where can people find you? Are you on social media? A little bit. My new associates, they're so good with it that I'm now starting to have a little bit of a presence. Nothing because of me, because I'm horrible at it, but they are (laughs) awesome at it. So uh, my clinic's name's Winchester Spine and Sport. Like you said, I teach for MPI and other various chiropractic organizations. And then also DNS, and I'm in charge of DNS baseball. So DNS baseball, I'm kind of going through this phase of my life where it's all baseball. So I was with the Cardinals for three years. And then now I'm going to do quite a bit of consulting with other teams. And I go to Japan next week for baseball. It's honestly blowing up. But I mean, it's just where my attention's been. You know, you could do DNS ping pong or DNS... (laughs) Dancing or, you know, whatever you're into. You know, Rich does weightlifting. So... Right. So yeah, then, that's where I can be found. And then what's next? So it sounds like you're going to Japan. Like what's like 2019 look like? Yeah, so it's busy with seminars. I got some cool places. I think I would go to Shanghai, Taiwan. And then like I said, I got, I got some more to do in baseball. And then my roles are changing at Logan a little bit. And then I'm starting to teach at another college in St. Louis. So it's the next five years are going to be more about education and like how to teach the model, I think, is where my next thing is going. And then mm-hmm. to continue to refine the office. Like I'm sure you notice there's so many moving parts with managing this. You know, we have 20 to 25 people involved in our operation here. So it's like a management issue, right? So it's very challenging, I think, to keep everyone on board for the mission and keep everyone... It's hard to keep everybody happy, you know? So my goal is the person who's running this is... At this point, it's honestly not about me. It's about like, how do we make this thing grow? And how does everyone personally get happy in group practice? So they yeah. don't just feel like they're an employee. So that's like the, the string that I'm constantly tugging on is to push the people around me because at the end of the day, they end up pushing me. So yeah. 
I'm trying to surround myself with people who I think are just the best in the world at what they're doing. That way it pushes me to be better too. So that's like the next thing in 19 is, and then of course, profitability, like how to, <laughs> how to make more money at it is the other thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to be selfish, but... Yeah. Awesome. I think a lot of doctors struggle with like, okay, I thought I was just graduating and being a doctor, oh, not wow. managing a team of people, <laughs> which... Not in chiropractic, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no. Is there anyone that you look towards for inspiration for managing or creating community and culture in your business? I just think there's a term out there now that I really like that's called autodidactic, which means you're able to teach yourself things. And I think like there's, there's a huge downside and dark side to technology, I think. But there's also like a really good thing in that anything that you want to learn is basically out there for you. Yeah. And we're seeing it now with like the continuing education market where people are not wanting to go spend their weekend at a seminar. They're wanting to like download the seminar on their computer and, you know, so being able to do that allows you to teach yourself about anything that you want. I think that's like where I'm good at that. I'm good at disciplining myself on what I want to learn. And whereas I think I've learned that people are not great at doing that. Like they'll do it for two days or three days, but they won't do it over a period of time. Yeah. 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 It's hard to keep the momentum. Yeah, like Angela Duckworth, who wrote Grit, says it's passion and perseverance for a very long period of time. Yeah. And so, and again, because of instant gratification, my students, they don't know how to do that because they're so used to, like, if you and I, when we were a kid, we needed to look up something, we would pull down an encyclopedia to learn about it. Now you just simply Google it and you're done, right? right. So it's totally, you don't have to work for information now. Right. And bad. right. And we had to like get to the library, <laughs> make sure it was yeah. open to get to the yeah, encyclopedia yeah, yeah. to go find the shelf. <laughs> yeah. I, but I am intrigued by anybody who's great at what they do. Like I, I try to study the habits of what those people do. And that could be in the political world, the business world. Like, because I think there's learning moments from all of these people that can be applied to what you and I do. Yeah. Anyone in particular come to mind? I love history. So I just got done with Grant's book by uh, Chernow. And I thought he was an amazing president and person. And so I would say that's the latest thing that I got into. A book that really helped me out a lot too is Anders Ericsson's book, Peak, which basically is kind of a roadmap to how to be the best in the world at whatever your craft is. And then, do you know of a guy named Michael Gervais? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a sports psych. He works for the Seahawks. I was fortunate enough. We brought one of our players out to see him. So I got to, I got to meet and hang out with him for a day. And he kind of gets me going. I, I think he does a really, really good job and is motivating on those thoughts. So obviously, like in MPI, we had leaders like Lynn Fay or Mark King. Obviously, in DNS, you got Collage and Elena Kobasova, who are huge role models for me. So. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I can, this all came together. This is yeah, so I know. Awesome. Yeah. It's perfect. No, we really appreciate very few people like come to a DNS seminar and actually apply it. So Rich what? Well, it's like I can't even like yeah. So we're we're proud of what you're doing in New York and it's really helpful for DNS to to see that be implemented in the way that it is. So yeah, we're cool. Awesome. Thank you. All right, guys, check Brett out. You can find him teaching at DNS, Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization. 
and for MPI Motion Palpation Institute. And if you're outside of St. Louis, go check him out in his clinic. If you feel like muscle medicine is adding value and giving you a wealth of knowledge, go to iTunes, rate and review. Every review helps spread the message, spread the word. Thank you so much, guys. Till next week. Mm-hmm.